If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, and BBC History Revealed. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. In 1897, a rather schlocky vampire thriller was published in London to no great acclaim. But 125 years later, Bram Stoker's Dracula has become a canonical text of the gothic genre beloved by generations of readers and adapted countless times. To mark the anniversary of its publication, I spoke to Professor Roger Luckhurst, who's the editor of the Cambridge Companion to Dracula. We spoke about what the story of a blood-sucking Transylvanian count can tell us about late Victorian Britain. Bram Stoker's Dracula was published 125 years ago in 1897, But interestingly, it wasn't the huge smash hit or the literary sensation that we might expect at the time it was published. So, Roger, why are we having this conversation today about a book that didn't even make that much of a splash? Why are we still talking about Dracula 125 years later? 
Yeah, it's a perfect vampire story, isn't it? Which is that it lives on long after it should have died. I mean, there's a huge boom in the late 19th century of gothic shockers, really, you know, real sensational, nasty, gory stuff that seemed to, there seemed to be a great appetite for. Uh, and Dracula was just one of those. So when it appeared in 1897, it was read amongst others. Often it's said that the most successful gothic book of that year was actually Richard Marsh's The Beetle, which is having a bit of a revival now. But no one really had heard of that. And, and Dracula was the thing that in its afterlife, really, it started to become incredibly successful. I always think it's amazing that Bram Stoker's obituary in the Times in 1912, when he died, just said he wrote some terrible books, including Dracula, but he'll mainly be remembered for his biography of Sir Henry Irving, the great actor of the time. Uh, and that's completely and catastrophically wrong. It's the novel that has lived on somehow, but almost in spite of uh, Bram Stoker rather than because of him. What do you think it is about the novel that has managed to give it such a long shelf life? Yeah, it's always a puzzling question, isn't it? And I think because there has to be lots and lots of answers to that, that's why we keep going back to it. So if there was one simple reason, I think uh, we would quickly pass on, perhaps like Ryder Haggard. You know, Ryder Haggard was hugely successful, sold hundreds of thousands of books every year, and now is only read for one or two. Uh, and Bram Stoker's book is much more open, enigmatic, and also it, it's very adaptable. I think the vampire metaphor is something that can shift through time. So it might mean something very different in 1897 to people rereading it in the 1980s, where blood suddenly becomes a form of dangerous disease, fatal disease again with, with the AIDS crisis. Uh, and then endlessly about borders and about invasion and the threat of the foreigner. So I think it's got loads of possible lines that mean that it can speak to different periods in different ways. I think that everybody listening probably is familiar with some image of Dracula, but there have been, as you say, so many different versions and some have been much more faithful to the original, let's say, than others. For people who might not know Bram Stoker's Dracula, can you give us a really quick crib sheet? What's it actually about? <laughs> <laughs> so... Dracula was uh, a book that he did actually research for for several years before. So he went and off and read um, some folklore and superstitions about uh, this figure of the vampire, which seemed to emerge in 18th century Europe. So he wrote some notes about that. And it's a rather brilliant idea of um, compiling a series of reports, of documents, of diaries, newspapers, telegrams, uh, even tidal dates and times, things like that. And it feels like an incredibly modern document in that it's it's a series of a group of people who begin to realise that something very menacing and supernatural has arrived in uh, England via Whitby, uh, up in the north, below that crumbling abbey that's in Whitby, if people know it, uh, and has insidiously worked its way into London and is starting to basically vampirise, to turn people into similar vampires. So there's a contagion that's starting. And really the story is this very breathless reporting of a group of mainly men, some women, who come together in order to expel this menacing threat, Count Dracula, from England, chase him all the way back to Transylvania and back to his original castle. So it's a circular story as well. You start in Transylvania, you end in Transylvania. Because Dracula has become the eponymous vampire, really, that if you think of a, a vampire, you think of Dracula. But it's important to say, isn't it, that 
Of course, Dracula wasn't the first vampire story. What were some of the inspirations, the supernatural inspirations that Bram Stoker drew on? Yes, the vampire is a very significant sort of folklore figure. Uh, and really the word vampire first arrives in England in the 1730s. And that comes from reports from the very edges of Europe, from the Balkans and Hungary, places like this sort of right on the edge of, of Christian Europe, where Officers of the army and doctors are beginning to get reports of disturbances in villages uh, where the villagers firmly believe that one of their their neighbours has died but keeps coming back from the grave to prey on uh, their livestock but also on their loved ones. And these reports in 1732 are remarkable because the doctors and, and, and officers are beginning to say, and we've seen it with our own eyes, you know, we've actually dug up these people and they did seem to be bloated with blood and we went along with this superstition of staking the body to the ground so it could no longer wander around, uh, sever the head, even burn the the corpse, you know, all of those sorts of uh, folklores. And you can see all of that trickling into um, Stoker's ideas as well. But then it shifts actually to literature in the early 19th century. So uh, the first aristocratic vampire was actually produced in that famous gathering of Mary Shelley, Percy Shelley and Lord Byron, who were telling ghost stories to each other. And there was also someone there called Polidori, who was the doctor to Lord Byron. Uh, and he got fired shortly afterwards by Byron. So he went home in a grump and wrote a, a short story called The Vampire, which has Lord Ruthven, who is this awful libertine, uh, who's clearly Lord Byron, but is a vampire from the undead who preys on the white women of, of, of England. So again, you can see that actually Stoker is picking up on that idea. One other key influence would be Bram Stoker's neighbour in Dublin, Sheridan Lafanu, who lived in fact next door to the family of, of the Stokers. And he wrote uh, a vampire story called Carmilla in 1872. And the first drafts of Dracula are really very, very close to the ideas of uh, Lafanu. So there's loads of material that's, that's being fed into Stoker's book. And what do we know about Stoker's motivation in writing this? So he drew on all these inspirations, but was he trying to create a, a smash hit? Was he trying to create a book to scare people? Or was he trying to create a literary masterpiece? <laughs> this is the great enigma about Bram Stoker. I mean, he is an extraordinary kind of figure. So, you know, grew up in Dublin, privileged Protestant minority and was destined to be a really boring civil servant. In fact, his his first book is called something like The Duties of, of Petty Session Clerks. So he was a clerk to a, a court in Dublin. And he threw all of that up in order to suddenly become a theatre manager in uh, London to Henry Irving. So the Lyceum Theatre in London, if people go to the Strand, if you walk around the back of it, you'll see that there are, there are three names inscribed on the back of the Lyceum Theatre, Irving, Stoker and Terry, and that's Ellen Terry, the famous actress, who Bram Stoker was also the manager for. So he, he did, had this crazy job of being a theatre manager. And in the meantime, he also wrote purely for money, really, uh, ghost stories. And uh, he started writing novels in 1890. They're all pretty, pretty much hack work. And I think Dracula was, was the same sort of hack work idea, really. He didn't 
expect it to have great enduring success, but he was interested in in commercial success of of these kinds of things. He managed other writers uh, who were extremely successful, like Hall Caine or uh, even Mark Twain. He was also a literary li- literary manager for Mark Twain. So that sort of sense of 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 him just wanting to make money from this. So he's really looking for a rattling story, which it is, uh, and and a sensational story. So so really kind of. Uh, suggestive, fast-paced, but also not expected to endure. Obviously, there are those sensational elements in there, but how did people respond when the book was published? What were some of the initial reactions to it? Were they shocked by this sensational content? Were people scared? Well, I think it was it was part of a part of a genre. So I think that's what's striking about it is that uh, here's another one, rather than a sense of oh, here is the kind of culmination of a particular kind of tradition. Uh, so there wasn't much initial reaction beyond here, here's another gothic schlocky kind of thing. But then I think it is very striking to know that it has success almost immediately and around the world. So it was translated weirdly into Icelandic in 1899. There was a Swedish edition in 1899. There was even a Turkish translation in the 1920s. So that sort of sense of it clearly speaking to people um, it's very important. And of course, it, it entered cinema in 1922 as well with Murnau's Nosferatu. So that sense of it kicking off uh, across different places in the world meant that it sort of escaped really from its initial context. It is very local. It's it's very much about the anxieties and concerns of London in 1897. And yet this myth kind of escapes from that context. I want to ask you about those anxieties in a moment. But before we do, one more thing about the publishing is that it was published with this incredible first cover, basically just the word Dracula in red print on a yellow cover. Why was it important that it was in a yellow cover? <laughs> well, there's a, there, there are lots of answers to that, one of which is um, that there's a whole revolution in publishing in the late Victorian period. Uh, so before about 1894, the standard way of reading would be to hire your books from a circulating library. That's where W.H. Smith's comes from, this idea of, of a circulating library. So you would just really kind of hire things. And then you got a commercial project, which was to sell books much more cheaply and more immediately to the public. And they were known as railway novels because they were designed to be um, read on a railway journey. And also yellow backs because they were um, in this lurid yellow. And yellow also acquires a sense of decadence and corruption. It's also a nice sulfurous, satanic uh, colour, I think, for the 1890s. So there's a th- there are lots of kind of resonances to this. So you do get this very kind of garish yellow cover with Dracula written in red on it, in blood red. Uh, and it's a very striking visual image, but that's because it's kind of facing out almost on a railway display and you need to be able to pick it out. It's a bit like a respectable, more elite version of the the Penny Dreadfuls. Yes, that's right. So, so the Penny Dreadfuls uh, are mainly known in the 1840s and 1850s, and they were um, serial books that just went on and on and on. So one of the most famous, actually, is Varney the Vampire, which is, you know, it went on for years. You got a s- series of eight pages or so every week. It was usually read out uh, amongst working class families. Uh, and these 
these books, these yellow backs, these these kind of gothic shockers are definitely descendants from that, although targeted slightly differently. So not necessarily at a working class audience only, but given that the the novel is all about middle class professionals, it's it's kind of looking back at a new sort of audience as well who are seeking sensation. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. Mina Harker is incredibly resourceful. She is not just a secretary to the men, actually. She is the information centre. She's like a data processor. So all of this information from the men comes to her. She types it up on this newfangled machine, the typewriter, and then turns it into an information system. She's basically a database. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. So you said earlier that Dracula is really about the anxieties of London in 1897. What are some of those anxieties? Yeah, well, this is the really striking thing about Dracula. So it comes out in 1897, which is, you know, the Jubilee, 60 years on the throne of Queen Victoria. This is the... This is the Empress of India in charge of the largest empire uh, ever seen. This ought to be a kind of great moment of confidence and assertion. And in some ways it is, but it's also a period of anxiety about, about decline and decay and is there anywhere else for um, the British Empire to go? So there is a, a, a sense in which Dracula is speaking the unconscious of that period. I do think it's really interesting that one of Dracula's houses uh, in London that he buys is in Piccadilly, and I think it's the nearest you can get to Buckingham Palace. So it, it's almost as if he's deliberately saying there is this dark shadow, this other, this monstrous figure who's hiding very at the, at the heart of empire. So that's one kind of sense in which, okay, so it's speaking to anxieties and what are they? I think there's a sense, obviously, of insidious invasion. So by 1897, you have a real influx of migrants coming into um, the country. We know from the present day the kind of discourse you get around refugees and migrants. So there were lots and lots, hundreds of thousands of um, Jewish Eastern Europeans arriving in London, particularly in Whitechapel in the east end of London. Uh, and there's a sort of 
concern in a sense that that this is completely unregulated, they're flowing through the docks, is it going to change the culture of England? And classically, that that nationalist concern is really focused on the threat to uh, women, the threat to the purity of the bloodline, all of those sorts of um, discussions. So Stoker is really playing with those kind of concerns. But then there's also the threat to, it's really a story about masculinity, about men kind of coming undone, really, being unmanned by this arrival. Nearly every man in the in the story from Jonathan Harker, this absolutely useless lawyer uh, <laughs> who goes off to Transylvania, and, and this is his first case as a professional, and um, he fails utterly and then still somehow gets promoted. So there's, there's, he comes very much undone, uh, has a has a brain fever and a breakdown. But even the admirable Van Helsing, who's in charge of the, the, the this Christian Brotherhood, who's going to expel this uh, awful creature, has fits of hysterics. You know, he can't quite sort of cope, and the men are sort of you know anxious and nervous. And really, the whole story is about them finding or refinding their sort of Christian strength, their belief. Uh, and there was a lot of concern about the the, the decline of, of manhood uh, in Victorian period. And that's partly also linked to the anxiety about the sudden uh, sense that, um, that that women have independent desires. Lucy, who is the first victim of Dracula in the book, has just turned down uh, three marriage proposals. And she kind of says fatally for her, if only I could marry all three. So, well, that's that's right out. We're going to have to kill you off immediately. So that's a sense of, of, of needing to sort of manage and control sexuality and sexual concerns and race. It's all kind of flowing together. So huge amounts of anxiety around the cultural sense of decline and decadence. I think that raises an interesting point. The point you said there about Lucy offering up some radical ideas and then quickly being killed off in the story as a result of that. And that is something that you see again and again in Dracula, isn't it? That these new ideas are put forward and then quite quickly kind of drawn away from. One of the big debates about the book is whether it's, you know, progressive or whether it's quite conservative, ultimately. What do you see as the answer to that? Yeah, again, if it, if it was one thing or the other, then I think it would be less interesting. But it's, it's the contradictions, really, of the book that make it so fascinating. So it can be both of those things at the same time. I wonder if you could give some examples, maybe. Yeah, so, the so, it, so it, it, the, the perfect example of this kind of sense of progress versus conservatism is in the portrait of the two central women. So Lucy, the blonde, desirable, perfect rose, English rose, is there, in a sense, to be policed and controlled. She's someone who has concerns about her ability to to control herself. She sleepwalks, she uh, has these daydreams, she is someone who's already, even before Count Dracula arrives, a sort of weak threat to, um, to safety. But on the other hand, her closest friend, Mina Harker, is incredibly resourceful. She is not just a secretary to the men, actually. She is the information centre. She's like a data processor. So all of this information from the men comes to her. She types it up on this newfangled machine, the typewriter, and then turns it into an information system. She's basically a database that, that means that they can tackle this threat. And she's even someone who knows the type 
timetables of railways off by heart. She, she is like Google uh, in some ways. And they can even dial up Count Dracula through Mina once, she's, once she gets bitten by him slightly. Um, she has this weird kind of telepathic link to him as well. So she's incredibly useful. And at the same time, you know, she's praised for having a man's brain. She's the dark figure. She's the unattractive one compared to Lucy. And then at the end, in another, yet another flip, uh, she becomes the mother, the Madonna and child at the end, the reassertion of Christian Europe. So she has that very conservative, consolatory role at the end. So you can see that it flips and turns all the way through and you're never quite sure where you are. Everyone always says that um, this is the, the the classic thing about Count Dracula, is that he is the monstrous invasive threat, but he's also incredibly alluring and attractive and transgressive and an incredible kind of sexual magnetism that, that emerges from him. So, of course, we get really attracted to what we should least be attracted to. And I don't think Bram Stoker is necessarily in control of that. You mentioned their train timetables. And when I read Dracula, that was one of the things I was most surprised. The amount of timetabling involved in chasing down a vampire is incredible. But of course, there are more dramatic moments. What do you think are some of the most chilling or striking moments that have stuck with readers over the years? Yeah, I think, I mean, there are very many scenes that are very effective, but I do think the most jaw-dropping one still is the tracing of Lucy Westenra uh, to where she is lying in a in a graveyard. Uh, the men are, are watching and waiting for her to leave her grave and then return in the morning. And there is this just extraordinary scene of the men who gather around the body of Lucy, and it's the the one she was most likely to marry who has to stake her through the heart. And the, and the men kind of stand around, give him the strength to kind of strike this first blow as she, as she kind of screams in this sort of agony. And it's such a punitive, nasty, misogynistic, vicious, uh, and overtly kind of sexual scene. I mean, even the, even the candles drip sperm. It says so in the, in the book. I mean, I know they're made out of whale sperm in the 19th century but you know hey give us some subtext rather than just text <laughs> you know there's a there's a sense in which that, that's an explicit rape scene and i always think that that's truly extraordinary how was that kind of element of the content perceived in the late victorian era was there any sense of outrage or censorship against material like that <laughs> Uh, well, I think I think there was, yeah, there was real concern. There was a there was a big conservative campaign in the 1890s to try and control the sense that that this was this transgression or this uh, this excessive, explicit discussion of sexuality needed to be contained. Actually, later in life, Bram Stoker wrote a very famous essay called The Censorship of Literature, in which he argued for it, that it should be contained. So, you know, I don't think he knew what he was doing in his own kind of writing. But the other kind of anxiety, which I think is really interesting about this, is that you think about Stoker writing this, uh, 1895, 1896, one of his other names in uh, Dublin when he was growing up was Oscar Wilde. And Oscar Wilde was someone who had been prosecuted in 1895. Uh, he'd been captured, caught in the company of young men, and he'd just been sent to jail for, for two years. Uh, and Bram Stoker knew him 
Not only that, he married Florence Balcom, who the week before had turned down Oscar Wilde in, in marriage, which is a very wise thing to do on her part. So there's a, there's a sense in which he is, I think, managing also uh, a kind of sexual anxiety uh, or concern that's kind of really bubbling around London. He's quite close to that scandal. He lived quite close to Oscar Wilde, actually, in London. So there's a sense in which, you know, there's there's an anxiety there that's just being kind of damped down. And the the prosecution of Oscar Wilde is very often seen to be a deliberate and conscious decision that they're going to stamp on this kind of progressive, transgressive literature in the 1890s. And Bram Stoker is right at the heart of that. So moving into the 20th century, I wonder if we can talk a bit about the afterlife of Dracula, some of its later iterations. When did it really become iconic in the way that it is today? There are a couple of um, really key adaptations that that happen. In 1922, so exactly 100 years ago, there was a very famous uh, German adaptation called Nosferatu by Murnau with this extraordinary performance by Max Schreck as um, Count Orlok. Uh, and that was that's a really iconic vision of, uh, of, of a very kind of feral, uh, rat-like vampire. Uh, but when Florence Stoker, his widow, heard about that, she went ballistic. She hadn't been paid any uh, copyright money and it was clearly an adaptation of Dracula. So she kind of pursued every single copy of Nosferatu to try and get it destroyed because they wouldn't pay her. Uh, and she was she was successful to some extent. The Society of Authors helped her prosecute. Um, but f- thankfully for um, history, she didn't get to every single copy. Otherwise, we wouldn't have that. She became much sharper about following through on copyright from her husband's estate. So in 1924, there was a theatre adaptation which was very successful in both London and New York. And it's that adaptation which then turns into the 1931 Universal Studios film Dracula with Bela Lugosi. So Bela Lugosi uh, fixes a certain movie image uh, of Dracula in 1931 and so you get the, you get this quite early and ever since then there have been hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of adaptations of, of Dracula in various kinds of ways and this this constant evolution of the idea of the vampire through cinema of all of those adaptations and iterations I wanted to ask you which your favorite is Okay, so the, I mean, there the, there might be adaptations of of a kind of narrow Dracula which are worth talking about, and I do still think that the Hammer House of Horror nineteen fifty eight version directed by Terence Fisher is really strong, and again, that's something that we need to remember was was in a blood curdling Technicolor for the first time. So that that's and that sense of, of of him as this kind of really demonic figure, but with kind of covered in bright red blood, uh, was a very striking, shocking post-war image, I think, for for um, dull, dreary England in the nineteen fifties. Uh, so so I think that's still worth going for. I think there have been really interesting versions of this and you can go kind of really low so there's lots of low cultural b-movie stuff you also go really high and avant-garde and one of my favorite versions of dracula is actually this very avant-garde film by um by a spanish director called Pere portabella which is called quadakek uh, vampire which came out in 1971 who hung around on uh, a set that was uh, filming christopher lee yet again as dracula in the late 1960s and he made this 
this very avant-garde film where he kind of shot both the film being made, but then also would let the camera drift off from Christopher Lee and sort of show you the really kind of tacky scenes, behind the scenes, uh, all of the terrible kind of cobwebs that were being sprayed by assistant stage managers. And and, and it, it completely demystifies Dracula in this really interesting way. And, you know, you can tell that it's still an incredibly political thing because Spain at, at that time when it came out was uh, under the dictatorship of Franco. And the authorities immediately banned that film because in a way they they saw it as a as a mockery of general franco this this kind of fascist leader so there's still got this immense kind of power uh behind the image of dracula and why do you think that we should still be talking about dracula today or why should listeners go away and read it uh, well, I think you should read it because it's uh, it's an immensely enjoyable, rattling read. Uh, but it's also, you know, it's it's full of really interesting insights, I think, into late Victorian culture, and also a sense in which some things persist. I think so that 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 sense of anxiety or nervousness about about race, about migration, that element of it really comes back and feels very kind of current, and then because everyone's always interested in uh, saucy sexual um, stories, there is that it still does have that sense of transgression to it as well, not just necessarily in this conservative way of killing off Lucy and, and, and trying to contain that, but, but in the sort of over-exaggerated uh, uh, allure of a monster like Count Dracula, a libertine who is able to have any kind of sexual imaginary around him. So I think there are, there are lots of things to get absorbed by in the book. That was Roger Lookhurst. Roger is Professor of Modern Literature at Birkbeck, and he's also the editor of the 2017 Cambridge Companion to Dracula. Roger also appeared on the History Extra podcast in January this year to talk about Gothic more generally. If you'd like to hear that podcast, just search for The Gothic in your podcast feed. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden. <laughs>